So, hi, Chris. I'm glad to have you with me on on the show on Forbidden Conversations. Um, so, Chris, you know, I've been I've been familiar with your work for a while because uh, you know you film threat and um, I come from a film background. So this I'm kind of excited to have my first sort of film related conversation on here because I've sort of gone from uh, you know, pretty much exclusively talking about film and culture uh, and TV as as a as a journalist to suddenly for the past couple of years almost not talking about that at all. So <laughs> it's kind of it's been an interesting change. So I would love to you know just give you know whoever is not so familiar with you just if you can give a little bit of a background about you and I think what's particularly interesting about your background is that you are, you know, fairly independent as, as a film writer, editor, and so forth. Yes. It makes me difficult to cancel. Um, well, I'll just <laughs> say right off the bat, I think that movies and entertainment are a gateway to a conversation about anything. It, uh, it's a conversation about love, life, relationships, uh, loss of a loved one, uh, politics, so I've always just loved movies. And so it's it's great to be able to kind of, you know, go beyond that and talk about a variety of topics. But I was just a, grew up a movie geek. Uh, that's not unusual. Read comic books, uh, science fiction novels as a kid. And then um, I saw a movie that was a colossal disappointment to me, which was David Lynch's Dune in 1984. And that inspired me to start a, sort of a punk rock fanzine. This is around 1985. And I, the name just popped into my head, Film Threat. So this was in college and I dropped out of college and then um, little by little built it up. I've never only had one job, right? So I've had what I consider to be a mick job, which is a job you don't care about, which is most people, right? You have a job you don't care about why so you can live. But that's- What was it? Uh, well, at the time I worked at a video store and then <laughs> I was so obnoxious as a counter jockey that they said, you can't wait on customers. It was because I was giving uh, recommendations to people that would come in and say, I really need a good comedy. And I'd say, well, have you seen John Waters' Pink Flamingos? And it's a maybe not for everybody, if you know anything maybe about not. Yes. For Pink Flamingos. But so then I began to transfer people's home movies to, to video. I just I always had like an odd job, but film threat after I started it when I was 19 was the first issue came out. And uh, then I just was in college and I was frustrated. I think, uh, you know, we, we complain a lot about the state of education now. I thought it was terrible back when I was growing up in, you know, uh, in the seventies and eighties, because I felt like I left high school and I was filled with facts and figures, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know, for example, how to do taxes. I didn't know uh, things that are useful, like how to buy a home or how to launch a business. So I felt that I felt failed by just my high school education. When I was in college, I'm like, so uh, I'm paying you all this money to go to college. And I'm expected to read these books, which are very expensive, regurgitate the contents as proof that I have read the book. I think I can do this on my own. I wouldn't rec recommend that for a medical field necessarily. But I bought a book on how to publish a magazine. It was very expensive. It was from a trade publication called Folio, which was the trade publication for the print magazine industry at the time. 
It's a very expensive book. And I read that book. So I'm going to start a movie magazine, a punk rock movie magazine that's covering these. At the time, they were called cult and underground films. The term independent film didn't exist until 1989. So I did that. And um, I, my business education was not so great. I just had all the issues printed on credit. And it wasn't until the sheriff was going to arrest me for fraud uh, and I had to make good on all these uh, printers that I had uh, tricked that I said, maybe I should get more serious about this. And then an editor at Hustler magazine really liked what I was doing in Film Threat because it was very counterculture at the time. I think, um, you know, I, I think we could use a little bit more counterculture nowadays. But uh, he said, how about you write comedy and humor for Hustler? So he hired me and I moved out to Los Angeles in 1989. And I did horrible humor in uh, Hustler magazine. It was very juvenile. But I was using all of the office supplies at Hustler to still do film threat. And then I tricked Larry Flint into buying film threat to elevate it into a national magazine. So, um, and then, you know, even in between all that, like I made movies and then I um, started a spinoff magazine called Film Threat Video Guide, which I owned separate from what Larry Flint bought and created a distribution company. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm already, I warned you I would be long-winded. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about that. No, yeah, but, like, but you know, yeah. what's interesting with that is, uh, you know, uh, with, there was a, a financial investment that was necessary back then to launch something like that. Because when I was, um, you know, I, I also sort of started in somewhat a similar way where I, I had an online magazine, but it was an online magazine. So the, mm -hmm. you know, I started it kind of as a teenager, but somebody donated the domain name to me. And I think they might've paid for, the hosting for the first, you know, maybe half a year or something like that. And so, and although I, my very, very first publishing endeavor was actually just like printing random magazines, but by magazines, I just mean a one page black and white printed on a printer and, and dropped into people's mailboxes against their will or desire and probably with very poor grammar and, you know, and I just realized how bad my grammar actually is spelling and everything was actually, because English was actually my third, is, is my, is my third language. So it, it used to be pretty horrendous. Um, so back then it was pretty horrendous. So as a as a you know a twelve year old or something like that, that's what I did. So that was my wow. first kind of foray into foray into journalism, and then and then the online magazine. You know, by then my my English had significantly improved, but it was a far more it was much more possible to grow something online, and it didn't need that um, financial investment. But then you're you know, you're in the way you're talking about it, you know, it's, it's this counterculture movement. And it seems to me that we've moved really far away from that in so mm -hmm. many ways. I think I look at a lot of these publications that were starting out at the same time that sort of my little publication was growing and film threat was once it was online and a lot of the media outlets that are now that have sort of survived through that 
time period are now very sort of commercial endeavors and, and very sanitized. So do you, what do you kind of make of that? How did we sort of get to the point where it was sort of started out as counterculture and now it's part of really this corporate kind of corporatized, sanitized media domain? Yeah, I I witnessed that transition firsthand, but I've always I've always kind of known that journalists, uh, a lot of the journalists, in particular in entertainment media, are lazy. They're incredibly lazy, and the there seems to be sort of a mass opinion that evolves um, when it comes to reviewing movies and whatnot. And I I just thought, well. I mean, just little things in Film Threat that, for example, the editorial section of the magazine, there's, you know, a note from the editor. Every movie magazine at the time, they basically just regurgitated the contents, their table of contents, and praised their writers. I thought, well, that's a, that's a waste of space. You know, I'm going to take a stand and have an opinion about something. In addition, our letters section, we almost exclusively ran letters that would say horrible things either about me personally or the magazine because I would have the last word and it was also intended to be humorous. Um, and this was all in contrast to what, you know, mainstream movie magazines were doing, which, you know, their letter section was a waste of space. It was praise, 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 praise. That's not interesting to me. I always like to, I like opinions that divert from my own. I like to read someone uh, because the only way I learn, you know, I don't need you know, I don't need my opinion validated. It's fine. I know what I think. I'm kind of bored with that. I want to, I want to, I want to learn something and get a counter opinion. And I want to look at something from an interesting way in which I'll be better for it. So I always aspired in the early days of film threat to do that, but sort of, you know, parallel to film threat rising was independent film, which is totally, you know, um, I mean, that's where Spike Lee came from, you know, Jim Jarmusch, Steven Soderbergh, uh, Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, by the way, which uh, he dropped out of the eighth grade. His spelling is not so great either. So don't <laughs> worry. You shouldn't feel so bad. But, you know, I, you know, I always just believed when it came, just to complete my education thing for a second, I recreationally sort of read. I love uh, biographies of people. I like to read like an autobiography, like Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants is great, um, uh, among, among others. I like comedians uh, autobiographies but i also like to read wonky business related books and one that really blew my mind when i was a kid was marketing warfare and i just i, I just sort of some for some reason that just sort of embedded in me and also um reading like about malcolm mclaren and how he promoted the sex pistols that's kind of just now in my dna um but uh in any case um the counterculture is just where I like to live because I think that that's where ideas can be debated and discussed. Now people fear the debate. Now we live at a time where the debate, the question can't even be asked. And so I think we're, not only are people becoming less intelligent because the media has softened uh, people's brain cells, but now just the, the, um, the kinds of conversations that we're able to have, I mean, the best ones are happening on podcasts. Like yeah. the one we're on right now, right? Or you know, you can name Bridget Fetisy, Joe Rogan. You go go down the list. Uh, Michael Malice. There's a lot um, that I that I listen to and watch. 
but um, that used to be the case on television. You know, Tom Snyder. Well, the question had, being yeah. asked, like, it has become sort of a dangerous thing to even ask the question. So, what is it about asking the question that it has become dangerous? And that's something that you know, for example, the role of a good film is to ask dangerous questions, right? Kind of going back to that. Um, mm. You know, I think I think it films sort of moved away from asking these questions, especially the dangerous questions, and towards sort of narrating the answers. And right. that seems to be sort of where we've, we're at. What is it that you think our filmmakers, do you think, are they scared? Is that the climate? Is it, is it more that they are interested in, in expressing their own point of view and they see their role as like being the messenger as opposed to the, to the seeker? Like wh wh where, where has that gone? Well, it's, it's gone awry for a number of reasons. I think modern cinema puts agenda over storytelling when it comes to narrative films. When it comes to documentaries, almost every documentary I see now is either politically one side of the aisle or the other. There, there are no you know, uh, films that uh, are made by a documentary filmmaker that says, I'm gonna, I have a question. I'd like to, I'd like to seek out answers. I will go where the, the facts and the answers take me, but that's not the case because most documentaries now are funded by people who have an agenda or conclusion that must be reached. I've never seen it wor worse in any period of time than now. You know, I've been covering film for, uh, you know, near, nearly 40 years now. And Gen X, I am Gen X, and Gen X, uh, our mantra was question everything. So that's, I can't not do that ever. And and uh, there have been attempts to cancel me just for... Uh, that kind of thing. Good. Uh, worst thing is, um, I'm my own boss. I'm not going to fire me. And That's I like nice. to say, I like to say that my media outlet. By the way, I, you know, look, Film Threat is, you know, yes, I'm responsible. I am the publisher, but it's comprised of more than 30 writers located all over the world, with various political opinions all over the spectrum. And I think that's how every newsroom should be. You should have all types of opinions and views represented. We have a New York feminist, along with a Christian conservative, all writing for Film Thread. Why aren't other outlets like this? And um, so I, I, it, it sort of, it's, it's really distressing for me to see that only one ideology is upheld when it comes to the mainstream. And then you have a lot of, especially on the independent side now, I've noticed more and more, is there is just one side, um, one sort of set of ideas that are the correct ideas. And if that is not strictly adhered to, well, then your movie is not going to be available in certain outlets. You won't get distribution. You won't um, you won't achieve success. You won't even get reviewed by critics. Um, for example, um, you know, we reviewed uh, What is a Woman, the documentary by Matt Walsh. We were one of only five media outlets that covered that movie, both on YouTube and uh, on the Film Threat website. And probably um, the only non-conservative one. <laughs> we're, I don't consider. I consider myself very, uh, very much a centrist. Having yeah. said that, there, hey, there are very good ideas on this side of the aisle, right? I, I love that. There are very good ideas here, but I, I, I look at. It used to be in the '90s, the extreme of the right was something I could not get behind. Um, 
Uh, I, I thought it was particularly authoritarian, censorious, and awful. And now it's kind of flipped. It's kind of flipped to the other side. I just don't like authoritarians. So yeah. um, I'm just going to well, go Daily with that. Wire sends me, you know, uh, I mean, I don't do reviews anymore. I, I started mm -hmm. out doing reviews, but I get, I still get occasionally pitched films or, or you know, I might do uh, stories around films, but I'll, I, I did get, I did somehow get on the press list for the Daily Wire. So they have pitched like certain films to me. Um, <laughs> even though I've, I've been a little bit more extra critical these days of, of some of the, some of their uh, narratives. Um, but in terms of the, um, of the film itself, you know, I, I have been pitched that and some others. And the thing is, I mean, there's zero chance of me reviewing it. And it's not because I think, I think it's okay. Like I would, uh, because mm -hmm. I think it's okay to review any film, but I know that none of the publications that I write for or have written for in the past would ever <laughs> do it. And I don't think that's right. Um, but that is, I, and, and just by merely me saying, Hey, can I review it? Unless maybe, unless they think my intention is to rip it apart, you know, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know if they care about that. I mean, for example, you know, we also, you know, reviewed Candace Owens documentary. It did not get a very good review. I, I have a lot of issues with that film, but to simply choose to not review a film that is the, in the independent film space, I feel that is my goal. And, and even with, you know, 30 writers from all over the world contributing a minimum of four reviews a month, we review about 250 200 films a month on filmthreat.com we're we're not able to keep up with so many films coming out internationally independent films and whatnot we do the best we can um with with what's what's presented to us but we're not going to be uh prejudiced we're not going to be um i heard a term in 2018 that really kind of changed the way i looked at a lot of things so a uh, uh, a guy that I watch on YouTube, his name is Nerdrotic. His, his channel is named Nerdrotic. His name is Gary Beekler. He used the term political bigotry. And I had never mm. heard that term before. When I heard it, I was like, oh, wow. And then I couldn't not see it everywhere. And it, it really began to concern me because my friend group is very, my friend group is very diverse. When I say diverse, not by, you know, the typical things. I guess. <laughs> just, you know, all over the map you know, all over the map, my, my friend circle. And I began to notice friends of mine that had just become hateful towards certain groups. And I'm, I remember thinking to myself, because my, my family all came over in the early 1900s. Uh, my grand grandparents on my mother's side from Polish, Poland and Russia. And then I have uh, other family from uh, Ireland, England, Germany, all kind of came here early 1900s. And um, those kinds of things are dangerous. And I see it happening more and more, this divisive rhetoric, uh, divisive, you know, just, just saying we're not going to review. So we're not even going to, to pay attention to what should be a major documentary, right? And we, we will do that. We will also cover a documentary about drag queens, you know? We just... Now, 
we we tend to you know we we throw out to our bullpen of writers like here's the move here are all the movies that came in for review this week here are brief synopses and then writers who are who kind of like like I like these kind of documentaries or I like science fiction or horror you know they they tend to gravitate towards those but we review all types of films and it's important to me to to have that all in one media outlet because I can't even think of one now that does that and it is it's troubling to me that here we are you know i have no formal education in journalism i've read a lot of books and in the in the 80s and 90s i was a magazine junkie not a joke had subscription to 50 magazines and just read constantly um but we're in a weird time now and i think that censorship is um i'm vehemently against it because the person who hired me the person who took a chance on a college dropout was Larry Flint, a guy who effectively gave, nearly gave his life um, over his, um, you know, fight with uh, Jerry Falwell, you know, paralyzed from the waist down. Um, I'm sure you know Larry Flint's story. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, I well, got and to actually the before. fact that I know Larry Flint's story is because, um, and 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 other people who specifically fought against censorship is because they were brought up. Uh, to me, in in particularly in more leftist environments, um, mm. specifically school, you know, I studied communications, and and you know, and in, in, in journalistic circles where those who were sort of espoused as values that were to be deeply cherished and hailed that rather regardless of whether you find you know his work to be smut <laughs> or right. uh or others or or you find that you know speech is offensive not to your liking right the, the fundamental idea being that speech that you do you must protect speech you disagree with uh, mm -hmm. at all costs and then i find it completely sort of ridiculous and I don't know, I, I lack a better word, but that it's sort of turned around now and the very people who sort of espouse the idea of like, yeah, we must protect that kind of speech are now saying, no, we must put it down. So that sort of turnaround in our culture, I kind of look at it because I'm, it's like, you know, I didn't change, <laughs> you know, they yeah. changed. Right. And I think a lot of people share that sentiment. And I, and I think in particular, you know, I'm um, not generation X, but I am, you know, whatever, an elder millennial, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. And um, this kind of, I think a lot, well, and I wouldn't even say, because I think a lot of people sort of abandoned these ideas, even from my generation or your generation, right? And then there's a, a younger generation coming up that I guess never even ha had these kind of ideals. And so I look at that and I find that just to be so dangerous because on the one hand, I hear people sort of say, no, we completely against censorship, right? Mm -hmm. And then it comes to something that they disagree with and then, yeah, but, and when you have that, but, well, then you are for censorship. And the fact that people don't see that, I find that incredibly peculiar and strange and I, and I, and, and incredibly 
dangerous because that is how we get to regimes of authoritarianism. And we might think that, including myself, I thought, well, there's no way that in a country like the US or Canada or the UK, you know, in, in, in England, you, you'll never, um, you can never get to these points. But, you know, people in Germany also thought, thought that, right? Because that was mm -hmm. a, a beacon of democracy at the time. It was a very forward thinking country in many ways. And then, you know, look what happened, some of the worst of humanity. And this happens constantly throughout history. And then we say, oh, we must learn from history. And then we do not learn from history. Uh, so, and we think, and we look at history, we think there's, it will never repeat again. We really do think that, right? I think there's something in our humanity where we think that that's the case. And yet constantly it repeats. Or you look at something like Hong Kong, where I think for many years, Hong Kong did enjoy, you know, a lot of freedom, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, free expression and all those kinds of things and look mm -hmm. at it now. Um, so I think it's something that we must, you know, consistently uh, be watchdogs of uh, and not slip and, and not sort of compromise on this ideal of, um, you know, anti-censorship and freedom of speech. And now, you know, to even say freedom of speech is almost like a dirty word and people like to associate that with you know, the right, and the right is a dirty word too. And it's like, well, you know, the right is comprised of so many different people and opinions and you can't blanket, put everybody in the same boat either. So, you know, that's where we are at. <laughs> yeah, it, it's unfortunate that this is where we're at. That freedom, the word, words, freedom of speech is a dog whistle. I mean, yeah. how, ridic how ridiculous is this? Uh, I, I, I just, I've just always believed I can I can't not think any other way that when the ideas are put out there you're free to think about them how you think about them but you're not you're not obligated obliged or nor should you force your views on others you know like I'm not a particularly religious person but I understand that religion is very important to many people's lives and I think it should be respected um for some people religion is uh Trent Reznor's music that's fine. You know, follow Trent Reznor on tour, whatever you want to do. So I've always been very respectful of others' views. But what I have recently found is, you know, you know, we've even had some problems in our ranks of writers, people not being respectful of other people's writing. Um, look, it's it's okay for us to have different views. This is the point of America, is that we can disagree and coexist. I've seen that bumper sticker before, but I hardly see anyone uh, living the values of that through their work. But I'll say we're living through a, a, a scary time where many people cannot be honest at work. Many people cannot uh, think freely at their uh, place of employment for fear of losing their jobs. I can't imagine, you know, how horrible that must be. I've always been... Um, uh, <laughs> A guy that's like, I've had one foot in the corporate world. I have worked for corporations before in the past. You know, I worked for a company, Comcast Universal, when I was on a television show called uh, on G4 TV and Attack of the Show. So I have one foot in the corporate world, but then I, I just was always, for good or bad, burdened with owning Film Threat was my voice. That was my outlet. I, and, and so 
um, which isn't which Film Threat has a bizarre history that um, I've been working with a filmmaker or working with a group of filmmakers for a, over a decade about a documentary about Film Threat in the 90s, kind of tracking the kind of rise and fall of indie film and and the media at the time and, you know, sort of weaving my personal story in with all of that. It's, uh, you know, any case, a, a, a big topic. But, uh, you know, what I learned in the corporate world is that when I started to, in the late 90s, I started, I'm going to work at home. I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give a go of it to work at home. What I found out is that I could do an eight hour day job in three hours without the inefficiencies of where are we going to lunch? You know, are we going to Tony, Tony Roma's? It's so-and-so's birthday. It's, it's this, can you sign this card? We got to do that. And then you know, random conversation. I'm, I'm very, and, and not to be cold, I'm very focused on the work because I want to get the work done because I want to get home to my kids. I want to play with my kids. I want kid time. Right. Uh, my kids are grown and gone by the way. So, uh, uh, you know, but at that time I was like, I don't want to mess around at work. I want to get my work done so I can not be at work. Uh, and so once I learned that, I thought, well, then I can kind of take on other things and kind of build beyond that, which was writing books, making films, etc. No one, no one ever hired me to do film threat. No one hired me to make a movie. No one hired me to write a book. I pitched those things. I hired myself. I came up with a method to write a book. Uh, which is very simple. I could tell you how to write a book in about two minutes, which is, um, and this is when I, I like, I decided I was going to, I'm just not going to be posting on Facebook very often. This was in 2018 when I had a bad experience with some friends who disagreed with my opinion and thought it was important to lecture me in the comments. I thought, why am I coming up with 500,000 word responses to this? Hmm. If I read a thousand words a day, every day, for 60 days, that's 60,000 words, which is the average length of a book. So that's effectively what it is. It's getting up at five in the morning when you're kind of pre-coffee in that sort of, you know, somnambulistic haze. Uh, you know, you're sort of half asleep, half awake. And you just sort of just like spit stuff out. Uh, you can you can write a thousand, three thousand words in one sitting pretty easily in under three hours. But that's after um, I spend about six months writing an outline. So I already know what I'm going to write. And then I just take the next thing, next thing, next thing, kind of jump around. I'll end up with 60 or 100,000 words in a short period of time. Sad thing is no one reads books these days. So um, don't it's tell a, me that <laughs> it's a, a book is more of a marketing tool than it is something that will move the needle on any particular topic. It's, it's unfortunate. You've got people commenting on stories on social media from the headline without having read the story. It's unbelievable how attention span has eroded, you know, not just the minds of people, but it's, it's diminished the conversation dramatically. Well, well, one thing you said is, um, you know, people don't feel comfortable uh, being, you know, themselves or speaking their uh, truth at work. But I mean, I think also they're not comfortable doing that with their friends either, for the most part, unless, you know, they're very good friends. And that's maybe one of the problems we have, you know, thousands of friends, but not necessarily the most authentic relationships. Uh, people are afraid of losing their tribes. Um, but also, I mean, kind of taking it back to um, 
work in terms of in the film industry, you know, something that I've uh, conversations that I've had with writer friends of mine in particular, you know, that they, they get into writer writers rooms. And that's some, somewhere that it's it's incredibly important to be honest. And, and sometimes you're going to say things that might be offensive because you're experimenting, maybe you're experimenting with jokes or characters. And, you know, sometimes the characters that you're speaking at as are, are are offensive or maybe they're you know terrible people or maybe they're not but but whatever it is right you're you're playing around but when you've got writers rooms where you might offend even one person right you might have that one sensitive person who is going to now report you and make your life hell which has happened as i've heard from quite a few stories of people that i know it, it silences everyone in that room effectively. And now those people in the room no longer feel like they can have these kinds of open creative processes. So imagine it must have tremendously substantial effect on the creative work and the output. And therefore, you know, we're seeing what we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, come out on the on the screen and maybe not everywhere because maybe some showrunners or some uh filmmakers will still you know control the boat and 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 not let that happen I imagine somebody like Tarantino, right like does whatever he's gonna do but but it does seem to affect a lot of people what are your thoughts on that oh i have a lot of thoughts on that um i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> i have a lot of thoughts on that first of all i think the problem is the tolerance for people who are too sensitive i think they should be fired i think that uh look i'm i'm very tolerant of people who completely disagree with uh and and they write for film threat they disagree with my ideas about certain things and that's okay i want them to be a part of my organization, but um, if they're going to impede on the creative process, those people should be let go. Uh, I have heard from friends, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I'm working on a couple independent films right now. I have a movie coming out April 24th. I don't know when you're going to run this. It's a documentary called Attack of the Doc, and it deals with sort of how things change in the last 20 years. I was on this TV show in that was, you know, came out in the early 2000s. And now almost any episode of that show, if it aired today, people would be canceled and there would be a giant controversy over it. What happened in this last 20 years? And, and this documentary addresses that while showing some of the crazy antics that occurred on that show. But um, I would have heard from friends who do work in sort of corporate Hollywood in those writers rooms is that um, it went from like, you know, the HR department at a studio or company, you, know, you get a couple of things you got to deal with every week, a couple issues. It is now multiple calls on a daily basis, on a daily basis. And it's generally coming from people that have this, um, you know, oversensitivity to things. Uh, we have not hardened this generation to just be able to hang, to be able. And look, I've been on film sets of movies I've made, movies I, ha I that when I'm going on a film set of a friend, they are they can be raw and they can be people are making jokes which may be inappropriate. It's really just sort of to loosen everybody up because you're doing an 18 hour day and you got a five hour turnaround the next day. It's it's intense. It's intense to make movies and television and whatnot. Um, but uh, what what is distressing to me is Hollywood bowing to the wishes of these people that 
haven't been around ideas that confront uh, confront what they've been taught. And a lot of so really, I don't believe I don't blame these kids. The a lot of them that have are coming up. I think they're being promoted too quickly. I think a lot of the uh, people that have been put in positions aren't ready for it because they don't have the experience. They have been they haven't been mentored. Really, I think it, it takes about a decade. You start as an intern, then you do this. You're working for a producer. You're doing this. Suddenly, you're in the writers' room after ten years. That's not. What yeah, now it's almost always like the the assistant of the of you know the showrunner or the director or the producer, and then they get into the writers' room almost right away if they yeah. like them. Yeah, because you check a box. How insulting yeah. is that? You check a box, and so you're in the room because you are this person, not because you have gone, you, you, you've you learned and worked your way up the ladder. That is completely wrong philosophy. Hollywood did it to itself. I hope it fails. We're currently living through what I would describe as the very opposite of a golden age of entertainment. If not, we're entering a dark age because this has been tolerated. That's how, that's how, uh, that's how distressing it is right now. That's how important this is. That's why I've always advocated for indie film because indie film is a voice unfiltered. Indie film is where people like Spike Lee came from. You know, no one, no one greenlit Spike Lee and Spike Lee still continues to make projects independently. Sure, he pairs with studios to get financing or distribution, but that's a guy I've always admired, which um, uh, oddly enough, I, I didn't get a job once at the DGA. They interviewed me for their house magazine, Directors Guild magazine, and all of the directors I named were not Guild members. They were all people like Tarantino and Spike Lee and George Lucas, people who would quit the DGA because they thought the rules were so insipid. So I didn't uh, know that. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah huh. But um, yeah, well, George Lucas for, I, 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 I'm filled with too many weird nerdy stories. I'm not going to bore you <laughs> with, but uh, George Lucas quit over. They find George Lucas when he made the empire strikes back, he produced it and he put the credit of director in the wrong place for Irvin Kirshner and find him, which is why George Lucas, when he made his other Star Wars movies, just made them in Australia or, you know, the UK. So, but see, uh, you have people who are much more willing to break rules, like, and when, so, you know, he, that might've been an accident and whatnot, but like when he was sort of unjustly fined because of a stupid rule, he's like, well, um, I'm not playing by your rules anymore. Yeah. George Lucas is the most successful independent filmmaker in history, period. Um, <laughs> pre previous to selling his property to, to Disney, he owned Star Wars. And now we've seen it fall on hard times because the brand has been so compromised. They basically feminized the brand of both Star Wars and Marvel. And it's become completely corporate. You're now looking at a checkbox of things that must be in the movie to satisfy certain certain requirements that are out there, um, and I think it's it's a matter of just not bowing to the mob that speaks very loudly about this. They speak very loudly, but they don't support this stuff now. Well, and the checkboxes hurt. The thing is that people don't talk about it a lot, but like the checkboxes also hurt the very people that they're supposedly trying to help, right? Precisely. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times, like I've been on sets where, uh, let's talk about women, for example. Um, mm -hmm. 
I mean, there's been situations where, so one thing that happened in Canada is that they said, well, we're going to do quotas for government funding where it's going to be 50-50, right? Well, uh, how many projects are being submitted by men and how many are by women, first of all? Well, statistically, it was 80% were being submitted by men at the time, uh, 20% were by women. Uh, so, you know, let's assume that we've got about an equal uh, quality there of submissions. Well, now if you're doing 50-50, you're going to get a lot more horrible submissions, <laughs> you know, worse quality submissions from women, right? Uh, if, you, if That are going to be green, greenlit statistically. Uh, so now you're, people are going to be seeing films and they're like, well, that's, that's terrible. Women make bad films, right? That hurts women ultimately. Um, then you, you also see resentment that happens on set. And I've been in situations where I've been on set and there were female directors that were amazingly good, right? Prepared, mm-hmm. have the track record, but automatically you have that kind of thought of like, oh, is this a diversity hire? And then you have also diversity hires and they just don't have the respect of anybody on set. And it just it just builds so much resentment. Um, there's also, uh, this was brought to my attention recently by somebody who's, you know, in, in a minority group. But um, there's all these shows that get uh, sort of consistently, there's certain people who will have projects greenlit purely because they have these connections. So they're not even, so they're being greenlit based on their minority status or some checkbox that they're going to tick, but it actually, instead of quality and it prevents other people who might also be, let's say, you know, in the, in the checkbox category, but might have better quality projects from being greenlit because it's not being done on pure merit. So, so things like that, that happen that sort of corrupt these industries for starters. And then you have a lot of backlash on top of it, but I'm sure you have much more to say on that topic. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's really disappointing to see, but I think that Hollywood, um, Hollywood loves to virtue signal, but the color that Hollywood likes the most is green. At the end of the day, (laughs) movies and television shows have to turn a profit. They have to bring in money for the business. And you're looking at this sea change in Disney, which is about to go through um, record number of layoffs in April, which is is going to be crazy, um, but it is necessary. I mean, the last... I, the last several Marvel movies have not made money. Those were that they had built a franchise that was, you know, you were just printing money with obscure characters, but there's something missing. I think the audience, whether they're able to recognize it or not, I think the audience kind of knows they, whether they're able, whether they notice it, whatever, um, something doesn't feel right about this. And I think that the problem in particular, the Marvel brand, because I can't think of an example of, for example, um, taking the Star Wars brand. We're going to make it not. We already have the men, no matter what. We're going to now make it appeal to girls. I would argue, actually, that there were a lot of female fans of Star Wars previous anyways. Princess Leia, very strong character, whatever. Um, but I think they pivoted to be very over, over, overtly feminized. And I can't think of a case of, say, for example, like Barbie. How do we get men to buy Barbie? Not that there aren't male Barbie fans. They exist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, I've, I've never heard of that. 
and it's tarnished the brand. I, I would argue actually that, that there were a lot of female fans of Marvel specifically because of the strong male characters. If you look back at the original Avengers movie from, I believe it was 2012, it was effect, effectively a Chippendale show. Okay, because one of the tropes of a Marvel movie is every male character must take their shirt off and show off their pecs and their bare chest. That's it's true. It's true. Every single Mar it's on. If you look at the Film Threat YouTube channel, we even did a video on it where we just topless Marvel characters. Um, but I think that there were women. Women. Uh, it's baked into the DNA, whether you like it or not. They like strong men, and I think when you feminize the male characters and you emasculate them, it's not appealing to women either. And I would say the majority of the male audience doesn't like it either. And this is why you've seen these, this, this, you know, seemingly brand that could not be tarnished just fall on such hard times dramatically, in particular with the most recent Ant-Man movie. Uh, now, superhero fatigue might be play a part of that. I think people are just tired of superhero movies. But if a good one comes along, I, I, I'm going to guess they'll go to the they'll go to the box office and see it because, you know, while we do cover mainstream stuff, I think it's important. You know, there's a, approximately 400 plus mainstream movies come out from major studios every year, but there are thousands of independent films that come out. And what my, my mission, you know, my goal is to present other choices is to say, instead of this, how about this? Um, on that note, I would recommend a movie called RRR directed by an Indian director named S.S. Rajamuli. Um, it was nominated for one Oscar, which it won. And it is an absolutely beautiful Hollywood type of film that Hollywood can't make today. Uh, it's on Netflix, by the way, RRR. What makes it, what makes it a Hollywood, uh, what makes it a kind of film that Hollywood can't make today? Because um, originally in old Hollywood, if you look at old Hollywood movies, they defied genre. And by that, I mean, Old Hollywood movies, yes, there were horror films and there were science fiction films, but there were those Hollywood movies, the big Hollywood movies had everything people loved. They had adventure, they had music, they had romance, they had drama. And, and so it combined all of things, humor. So if you look at RRR, there's romance, drama, action, there's friendship. There's, uh, I mean, it, it's it's a just a beautiful film. Uh, I've done far too many videos about it um, <laughs> so you'll suffice it to say you like you like yeah. that film it's the center space on the bingo card whenever i'm having a conversation you can just mark it off uh, right away but but that's what that was old hollywood hollywood made a movie if you look at old hollywood films uh gone with the wind had romance it had action it was steeped in history it had romance it had drama seething with drama that was old hollywood and a lot of films, uh, Indian movies in particular, really lean into this. You know, yeah, they may sort of lean one way or the other. This is more of an action. This is more of a romance, whatnot. But um, I found myself increasingly going to uh, Korean cinema or Korean television or Indian cinema. And, and what's interesting about India is it has, I think, around seven different industries Meaning, meaning there are different entertainment industries. There's there's um, Hindi and there's Telugu, different languages, right? Um, in the United States, we have Hollywood, and that's it. We have Hollywood, and I and Hollywood nice, and independence. I think one nice thing about like Netflix is that um, it because I think they've been 
um, it's probably a very nice thing for them to do is is to buy up these foreign films because they probably don't cost that much for them to to do that. But it it did allow people to sort of discover uh, more foreign content, including myself. And they they do it with TV shows and TV series as well. So it's, it's been a pretty effective way. Uh, what do you make of the, you know, of the, say, the recent Oscars? And people have certainly been losing interest. I, I have to say, for me, one way for me to have kept sort of connected to film um, is I'd go to film festivals like the Toronto Film Festival, and I sort of discover these films there. Uh, since the pandemic, I have not gone to, a, I have to confess, I've not gone to a single movie. Um wow. Yeah, and I and I have I was as somebody who's pretty much would always win every Oscar pool um, uh, with close to perfect predictions. I have to admit that this year I didn't even know any single movie that was nominated. This is how I've fallen. So I didn't even watch the Oscars. I haven't watched it last year either. Um, I just I feel completely disconnected. Um, you know, I think a lot of people feel, uh, like regular people outside. I mean, for me to not know is really shameful almost because I've been in the industry for so long, but most lay, you know, people who are outside the industry from what I hear is that they just feel like it doesn't represent them. It's just very elite. Um, it's, it's the films don't represent what people want or like, and and certainly not the speeches. <laughs> so, um, yeah. well, what's kind of your take? And has it has it changed, or is it kind of the same? And just people have awakened to that even more. Well, um, real quick first, uh, I was banned from the Toronto Film Festival once in the eighties, in, in a story that went national. And uh, yeah, I was banned from the festival, and then returned the previous year in a disguise where I made up a completely different media outlet and crashed the festival and then wrote a story about it. It'll be in this upcoming documentary about Film Threat called Film Threat Sucks. But when it comes to the- Wait, Oscar- I, I am so curious. Are you able to tell me why you were banned? Uh, they didn't like the way we covered the festival. We covered it in sort of a gonzo journalism way that um, we covered the parties, we covered the scene. We, um, we posted a photo of Sean Penn passed out under a tree uh we i'm not making this up and and then we just wrote like sort of you know we kind of made fun of canadian cinema which i thought was uh appeals does not have an appeal outside of canada uh they really haven't built a cinema that is broadly appealing but yeah so we were they told us you're not invited so i made up a completely fake magazine called film form the art of the cinema i did a fake press kit I, I sent it off to them and I took a photo of myself where at the time I couldn't even grow enough facial hair. I drew on a fake goatee and wore glasses and I crashed the festival under a different name. And then uh, it became a scandalous news story at the time. I, I you know, love this. I love you know, this so much. And by the way, the funny yeah. thing is, disclaimer, I used to work for a nonprofit that promoted Canadian film. <laughs> so we must yeah. have a um, conversation about that at some time. They're not very good. They're not very good. I mean, with the exception of filmmakers, um, you know, like Cronenberg, um, you know, uh, they're just, it's, that's a whole other conversation. When it yeah. comes to the Oscars, um, you, you you hit the nail on the head. They used to, you can track 
when the Oscars were popular, and to be clear, the Oscars got this similar ratings as the Super Bowl. That's how huge the Oscars. It was internationally speaking, the world stopped when the Oscars was on because you would see your favorite stars of which you can probably name all the stars and celebrities on one hand these days, right? Uh, you can start the list with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. But um, they're just, you know, that used to be a way to see them sort of unfiltered. You know, they're, they're a, little, uh, a little drunk at an award show. And it's now turned into this thing, uh, a platform for lectures, which people don't like. They don't like to be, oddly enough, people don't like to be told that they're bad people because they think a certain way or because they, they happen to be religious and go to church every week. And the constant vilifying of what is 50% of my fellow Americans is offensive to me. Any celebrity or any person in a position of power that promotes any sort of divisiveness is someone that I will push back against. I'm I'm vehemently against that. There's a movie, not to go off on a tangent, but this is, I'm Captain Tangent. That's if I had a superhero <laughs> name. Um, there's a movie which was based on a serial comic book, comic strip from the 1930s called Flash Gordon, in which the main villain of Flash Gordon is a guy named Ming the Merciless, who kept the kingdoms of Mongo fighting amongst each other so they would that they would not notice who the true authoritarian threat was, which was Ming. That is the world today. That is today's America. You know, being divided by um, gender and race or sexuality is stupid, and we need to come to some sort of middle of respecting each other so that we can coexist. But back to the Oscars. Um, <laughs> they stopped nominating movies that were popular. It used to be you can track, you can look up these charts, okay? Um, if you look from two, the year 2000 to now and you look at the dipping ratings of the Oscars, is uh, it totally tracks to the box office success of the movie of the nominated films in Best Picture category. So if a film was big at the box office, it was more than likely going to be nominated for Oscars because it was popular. Dances with Wolves. Unforgiven. These are very popular mainstream movies that also had a lot of ideas that some might describe as woke. Some might describe Dances with Wolves as being woke. Uh, the difference is, and how I identify something as being woke, is if it tells me I'm a bad person, if I don't exactly think the way that the movie is trying to tell me how to think. You can present ideas and I'm allowed to think for myself and come to my own conclusion. That is not, not how this stuff works today. It's, it's very overt in the political messaging and the agenda. And it's destroyed main superhero movies are now filled with this kind of crap. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of guilt-ridden executives listening to their assistants who have no life experience whatsoever, which I think is uh, comical. But but really, you look and like those, and it used to be a couple small indie films would squeak through, right? So there'd be like some small indie movies that would squeak through. They'd be nominated for screenplay or they'd get a supporting actor nomination in a small indie movie. That's fine. But if you look at the Best Picture nominees and the majority of nominees, they were from movies that made a lot of money at the box office. Now you have We're still like quality films. Like it's not like yes, they were. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Still great films. I mean, independent film is where my heart is personally, uh, because I think it's just, it, the, the authenticity speaks to me. Whereas um, Hollywood is about falseness and sugarcoating and what I call movie people. 
And people that are movie people don't act like people do in real life. They're fake and phony. So the industry. But like a movie like as as good as it gets or something like that. I don't know. Like I think it won uh, several Oscars. And um, I don't know if that's I don't think it's an indie film. Uh, or maybe it is. I don't know if it's considered an indie film, but and I don't know what it did at the box office. But um, I mean, that's a, an Oscar movie, right? Probably right. did okay at, at the box office. Yeah, it was popular. Uh, look, there's a speech that Jack Nicholson's character gives um, out to dinner with Helen Hunt that if you repeated that, you would be canceled immediately. He's talking about how he writes uh, female characters. Uh, look up that clip. Uh, but, I know what but, you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He's, uh, but like it used to be, there was a mix of, I mean, that film, it was not an independent film, but I would con- consider that film independent spirit, you know, um, a big movie from a studio. That's just a, just a drama with actors that we want to see. But when you look at these movies there, um, whether it's um, a film like women talking uh, very competently directed by Sarah Pauly, by the way, I, I happen to really like her. Um, or a film like she said that aspired to get Oscars and got none. I thought I thought she said was was actually a really good film. I, and I, I said to myself, this is gonna bomb. It will not make any money, and people are going to hate it. I was correct. Um, it's a movie people just didn't want to hear. Um, I don't know if you saw she said it's the movie about the New York Times journalists who broke the story about Harvey Weinstein. Um and, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, really great film. I thought it was fantastic. It's a genre I personally like, you know, hero journalists, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> spotlight or uh, all the president's men. I like that kind of movie. It's a drama, but also I thought it really did a great job of showing why it was important for these women. Um, why it was important to them. And it's because they were mothers and one of the characters had a young daughter and it wasn't just about the story. It was about sort of changing things for her future it showed the home life of these journalists but the thing that i think that a lot of people turned a lot of people off is this is hollywood patting itself on the back for a thing that probably is still continuing to this day i'm sure it is what do you think of the Kate blanchett what do you think of the Kate blanchett um movie i i kind of want to see that that one loved her one of my favorite movies of the year um i think it did a great job of having it both ways where it was a film that kind of attacked the sort of overly sensitive wokarati you know in that one scene which i'm sure you've seen and how she was canceled for that it was also sort of a flip on imagine that movie with a male character you wouldn't bat an eye it's like yeah like men can be predatory assholes and date younger women it's a Tuesday in Hollywood, but you put Kate Blanchett in that role. It completely changes it. And unfortunately, Kate Blanchett just as an actress is too likable. Right. So we're kind of like where she's doing awful things, but I'm with her because it's Kate Blanchett. Right. Well, she's- One thing I liked about um, at least uh, from the interview with the director, he said that this is a movie that's meant to ask questions as opposed to providing answers. And that's uh, the approach of that is something that I really enjoyed. It was found kind of refreshing. Uh, you know, it should be most movies. But I think I mean, I think it's OK to also state, I mean, as an artist, you can do whatever you want. I think ultimately yes. you can you can say what you want. I just don't think being preach preaching is is really the way to go. I, I, I but you can say what you want. Um, I think the problem arises where it becomes this like 
uh, you're, you're the villain if you don't agree with me. Uh, I think that's that's the problem we have. And then we have this kind of assumption that everybody agrees to, including everyone sort of in Hollywood. And I think we, we've discussed this, you know, um, off, off, off live, offline, is that, um, you know, a lot of people that we know are, are not necessarily on board with a lot of these ideas that are being espoused. And I think a lot of people sort of assume that by default, everybody sort of agrees with each other where there is actually a lot of dissent and people will be quite surprised. But I, in my circle, you know, especially as I've sort of become more open myself and, and bring up these conversations, um, and even with people that I'm not even that close to, you know, in film sets and and uh, as well as people that I uh, am close to, or sometimes people will see things that I've written and they'll reach out to me um, and they'll be like, listen, I can't speak about any of this publicly because, you know, I'm in this situation where my career is at risk. Um, but they all sort of, I, most people that I've talked to, don't believe any of the stuff that sort of Hollywood seems to signal that they do. Yes, um, that is that is true. I've had a lot of friends. I've had people that I don't know that are that work in various spaces in Hollywood, in the studios, even actors reach out to me and say, I like what you're doing. I like what you're saying. But they don't the problem is they don't feel comfortable saying it themselves. They have to toe the they have to toe the line in order to stay employed in this industry. And this is why we're where we're at is because there's so few people willing to speak out and call this stuff out that it's gone too far. And um you said something earlier that I really want to comment on which is I think the problem with modern writing. It's not only that you're bringing up people that are you know, not qualified for the positions that they're thrust into. They are wholly not qualified. But um, most of the young writers coming up are completely incapable of writing subtext. So what they do, and this is why you say, well, the writing is bad. Well, why is it bad? And it's because they're speaking the theme out loud on the surface. There's no subtext to it. Where it used to be, you would see two characters in, in a scene and they would say, um, you know, you'd see the, the dialogue as written, like, you know, what's wrong? Nothing, you know, like there, there's something more beneath the surface between these two characters. Today's writers cannot write subtext. They're completely, completely incapable of that. And that's what's destroyed modern writing. So when you don't do that and you're literally just speaking the theme aloud, you know, men are bad. This is bad. I mean, look, I, I, I 99.9% .9 of the people believe racism is bad. Okay. Race. It's just, yeah, we just, you just say, yeah, we believe it. But this constant hammering and messaging, I get it. I get it. You, it doesn't need to be something that's con constantly spoken about. And then the, the, the assertion that all the, this is the first time a character has ever done this in a movie. Look, I grew up with a lot of different television movies in the 70s, which I thought was, to me, the 70s is, was the golden age of American cinema. So many great films emerged from the 70s. Godfather, Taxi Driver, go on and on. French Connection, so 
amazing films. Yeah. It, was, it was a time they let loose these young, at the time, young filmmakers. George Lucas created Star Wars in the 70s. But even television at the time, you know, um, I want to challenge a couple of, I, I'd like to challenge maybe a few ideas that maybe people just sort of take for granted. And that is that I need to be able to look like someone to identify with that person. And I think that is a narrow-minded and simple-minded and incredibly stupid opinion to have. The point of all fiction, that is novels, comic books, video games, movies, is to see yourself in someone you are not. I identify with the protagonist, whether that protagonist is the same ethnicity as I am, whether that protagonist is the same gender, it doesn't matter. Or whether, whether the protagonist is a mouse in a cartoon. I identify with the protagonist. It's a way to visualize myself as someone I am not. Leave. Look, I don't want. I don't want a movie about me. Okay. As much as there is a documentary coming out, I really don't want a movie about me. I want to be able to escape into someone else's story to see the world through their eyes. You know, and and that's that's the opportunity of fiction. So when you add this limiting thing that Hollywood has somehow popularized, it's actually people on the internet have popularized this idea. I need to see myself in that character. No, you don't. What you need is authentic storytelling. There was a the show I grew up watching when I was a kid called What's Happening. I don't you you've never heard of this show. It was a sitcom. Uh, I don't think there were any white characters in it. It was a black sitcom. Um, and I loved the lead character of Raj. Raj was around my age, a little bit older. He wore glasses, he was a nerd. He was a big nerd. He was being brought up by a single mother, um, which at the time I was being brought up by a single mother. I was a nerd. He was always faced with the, the, the you know, moral of the story was always, it's always some morality tale. He had to make the right choice. He had to do the right thing. Right. And I identified with Raj. Okay. Didn't look like me. Didn't matter. I identified with aspects of his character, not what he looked like. And to popularize this idea that I need to exactly look like, the that's a video game. You design a character that looks just like you and go play a video game. When it comes to storytelling, you're missing an opportunity to be moved by the story of someone else's experience. And this um, race and gender swaps happening in popular uh, movies and whatnot, I think is very inauthentic. There's a whole thing. You could go down a rabbit hole of the erasure of redheads. Nearly every redheaded... <laughs> No, I'm serious. Nearly every redheaded character, whether it's comic books or movies, television, whatever, is being race swapped by someone who's usually someone uh, uh, who's ethnically black. So there you go. Right. But it's well, there's also this sense of lazy. that you can only um, write or a story if you're of that race or of that demographic and you can only play. This is even taking it a step higher. Right. Like you can only kill a character if you're gay. Or if you're, you know, that ethnicity or you're this, unless you're Jewish, then that's, you know, you can be cast by any uh, background. So yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a double standard there. But, I, I do yeah. agree with some of that. I do agree with some of that in the sense that I remember seeing a movie I loved as a kid called Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay. Love that oh, I never movie. heard of that. Never <laughs> heard of that movie. <laughs> sure no, but Audrey Hepburn, I mean, she's so lovely in that film. It's such a great movie. But the thing that really disturbed me was the performance of uh, uh, Mickey Rooney as the Asian neighbor. Bothered me because I watched a lot of Asian 
films when I was a kid. I grew up watching Toho Godzilla monster movies. I watched shows like Ultraman and Johnny Sacco. I loved Asian cinema and I thought it was so overt. It was offensive. But it was like, you know, whatever black face or Asian face, right? right like ultimately, right? right? It's uh, so that's the problem with that. And, and that character, um, so that's, that I think is a different thing than, um, you know, a character can't, for example, if a character isn't gay, I mean, for example, there people couldn't be openly gay for the longest time, right, right? right? And they, and then they acted, you know, and then they, those stories probably wouldn't have gotten told those very important stories that allowed you know, people to understand the humanity of these situations um, that probably otherwise wouldn't never have gotten out if 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 straight actors didn't tell those stories at the time. And now look, and now these actors who are gay can play straight characters, they can play gay characters, you know, sometimes that they might want to play a gay character because that really resonates and that story might really resonate with them. And they want to bring it to life and that's okay too. Or, um, and I think, you know, you want to be responsible in the casting so you don't make, you know, outrageous casting choices like you do uh, and stereotypes and cliches like you do in Breakfast and Tiffany. So you want to be responsible in how you cast it and thoughtful. I think that is very important. But I think to say, oh, only this person, you know, I played a character um, just, I mean, just for kind of a play or a scene, it was a character who was uh, gay and kind of closeted at a time period. And just that experience had taught me uh, a lot and, and just the emotions. And it wasn't about being gay, you know, it was about mm -hmm. the human experience of like uh, what it's like to experience people discriminating and, and putting your friend in danger in the context of that play, right? There's there's a lot of emotional roller coasters that are going on and how to deal with, you know, being put in a situation like the character that I had, you know, that I, that I played was, you know, ultimately commit suicide, you know? So, and an actor, I mean, there's the experience that an actor has and they've never had, you know, it's always your imagination. You're never going to be exact. So I think um, it's part of the human experience and, and the magic and the treasures that you learn and you observe. And but you have to be responsible. So like if I'm a writer, for example, and I'm writing about, I don't know, I'm writing characters black. I might not actually do that, right? Like, um, I might not do that because I don't feel like I have enough experience if I'm sending a character. And, 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 the, and the fact that that character is Black is very specific to their experience, right? If I don't feel like I have uh, that full insight and knowledge, right? I might not be the right person to write that character. And then I might not do it. I might actually, you know, maybe if I lived in that world and I lived in a neighborhood that's maybe all black and I had all black friends and, you know, maybe I am the right person to write it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it depends on the circumstances. Uh, it, it just depends. Like, and I know I spoke to a writer who has written uh, to the, one of his first 
I mean, John Patrick Shanley, for example, right? Mm -hmm. One of his first plays uh, that he wrote, uh, they thought he was a black writer and his play was staged in a black theater uh, because they thought he was a black writer because he got it so right. But he lived, you know, in the Bronx and he had such an ear and, and he was surrounded by that community. So I think it just, it's about the re taking that responsibility very seriously. Well, and some I, people don't. I, hmm. Well, I think it's, first of all, I, I agree with you that um, should be taken very seriously, but you're also, you don't want to make the assumption that every gay person has exactly the same experience no. or every black person is exactly the same or has the same experience. I I, I, I do think that part of the, the writer's ability, the tool, what makes writer writers when they reach the level of being an artist is their ability to, you know, uh, write a character that isn't them. Todd Fields wrote Tar, right? You know, he's not a gay woman. Um, and yeah. I'm not even sure, I'm not even sure actually if Kate Blanchett is gay. I don't know much about her personal life. But from me, from where I She's sit, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't care about the personal lives of celebrities. I find it the least interesting thing. I mean, celebrity or actors, when it comes to actors, they are very good at uh, faking authenticity. That is the skill of an actor. And that is a skill. Okay, but yeah, um, I, I just think that it's the, it's um, you know, being beholden to that mob that would complain about that. I think there are obvious cases that uh make a make that just are sort of cringy. For example, looking back on so many actors that played slow or um characters that had mental disabilities, I think is just after a while it's like okay, I mean it was made fun of. Um, in the movie Tropic Thunder, right? With that fake film, Simple yeah. Jack. It's hilarious. But, you know, I recently saw a movie called Champions uh, starring Woody Harrelson as this uh, aspiring NBA coach who, you know, after a drunk driving charge is forced to coach a team of kids that all have mental disabilities, some of which have Down syndrome. And they hired all actors who have Down syndrome. And I'll say this, I have a stepbrother who happens to have Down syndrome. And I felt it was very authentic. Right. These are not these, you know, most mostly kids with Down syndrome, they reach the maturity level of about 14. Right. Uh, and it was so authentically showed the that these kids, I thought it was really heartfelt. It felt like a movie that was made in the 70s. And it is a very cliche sort of like sports go for your dream. We either either win or we lose. It's also very inspiring. Um, and I quite love the fact that they just said, look, we're just going to hire actors that all fit that. It works. And then there's some sometimes where it doesn't work, but I don't think you should be you should be handcuffed by the idea that you can't hire an actor or a writer that doesn't have that. I think that is that is utterly moronic. And it, it bothers me that so many just on their face, just because I'm a common sense, I'm I'm very much a centrist in common sense. And I have seen so many stupid ideas in recent years come into prominence as this is how we should all think. It's it's disheartening. And I see very little pushback or challenge or the pushback is all coming from one side of the political aisle that that almost taints the message. Whereas like, you know, look, centrist that that for the most part voted left. Right. And then I, I don't know that I feel that way anymore. And I, I well, I will say about centrists, one thing about centrists, because there is these attacks uh, specifically from the right uh, mm -hmm. about centrists. I, I want to address it. You probably heard me talk about it. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, there is this kind of idea that the centrists, because they were nice, that's why how we got here. And I want to dispel this <laughs> once and for all. <laughs> 
that's not how we got here. How we got here isn't by being nice. How we got here is by not pushing back and saying, no, we, we are not, we're going to disagree with this. We, we are not okay with this. And people like you who self-identify as a centrist um, have pushed back and said, no, I'm not okay with that. Uh, I do disagree with that. So that's not how we got here. What we got here is with a, a large majority of people just staying silent and going along with things. Uh, so that's what it is, including, by the way, lots of people on the right, lots of people on the left, like all spectrums have been sort of complicit in this. It's not being nice. And you can be nice and not go along with things. You can be, you know, you can be honorable in how you present yourself and you can be, uh, you don't have to be an asshole, you know, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you don't have to, you know, uh, obliterate people in, in the worst kinds of ways to do it. But it's enough to say, you know what, I don't think that's such a good idea. And honestly, that is enough. Because I think most people, um, based on the conversations I've had, and the conversations that I, we've had, are, are actually not okay with these things. It's just that they're so afraid of speaking. So it's kind of it's more so a lack of courage to just say what we feel. That's what it is. It's not the centrist. It's actually the centrist for the most part who are speaking out and have actually shown sort of the moral courage of saying, hey, you know what? That's not that's actually not OK. Let's let's not <laughs> let's 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 push back on this stuff. That's that's so. Uh, yeah, just just wanted that point to be made. Yeah, I, I will just say, um, at least from being a centrist, gives me the, the ability to look at ideas on both sides and say, well, this is a very good idea. Or I'm I'm very tolerant. Let your freak flag fly. Be who you are. You're over 18 and an adult. You can make your own choices. Having said that, when it comes to raising children, I became a father at a, at a young age, and uh, I'm very conservative when it comes to raising children. Children like boundaries and guidelines. And I noticed, because when, when my kids were first uh, born, I lived around the sort of mid, I was like Melrose and La Brea, sort of in Los Angeles. And I never saw worse parenting in my life. I had to move away because I just began to notice a type of parent that was, um, they would act, this is the way that they would act is their kid would want something. I'm talking about like a three-year-old. And they would say, I don't know. What do you want? That is the last thing. You don't negotiate with terrorists or children. Okay. I'm a, <laughs> I was a very firm. Same thing. Yeah. I'm a, I was a very firm dad with like, you know, I'm not my kid's friend. I'm not here now. I am my kid's friend now that my kids are adults. They can buy me dinner. I always pay. But they, you know, they have the ability to buy me dinner. Uh, I see my daughter once a week. We have a once, once a week, we get together for dinner and go see a movie with a movie meetup group that I have. We're all sort of hang together. It's fun. But it's, she's, she's an adult now. Now I can be her friend. I'm not your friend. My goal as a parent is to teach my kids skills so that they don't die when I'm not around. They need all sorts of lessons and skills. On, on a lot of levels. So I'm extremely conservative when it comes to raising kids. And that's why I push back whenever I hear a, uh, someone who is childless trying to tell me how I should raise my kids. Uh, you don't have the right to tell me this at all, period, full stop. And and I've, I've seen this debate and there really is a divide. You know, it, it's not around politi political ideas per se, but I see it's, it's around like people who have 
kids and people who don't have kids. And then uh, and I just see the, the some of the worst decision-making I've ever seen by parents here on uh, the West Coast, which is why I got out of there to the, you know, moved, moved far enough away from LA where I could go to LA, but was away from the nonsense. Um, and so both my kids are, you know, fully formed common sense adults and they make their own choices. Well, I think that's the biggest tool um, that one a parent could give kids is to be able to be common sense and have the tools to sort of be independent thinkers and critical mm -hmm. thinkers. I do find that it's very kind of um, a very North American thing to mm -hmm. want to be your your kid's friend and just kind of I do find that um, there is this indulgence of kids and, and um, a little bit over the top support. You see this in movies, by the way, a lot where it's like, oh my God, what a horrible parent and missed a, missed a game or missed a performance. And I think I grew up with like a very different um, um, thing where um, I just don't have, I never had the same kind of expectations of my parents because you understand your parents also have to work hard. Um, can't always be there. And I think there is this kind of sense um, in, in North American culture that your parents are like there for you, for the every whim of the child. And I think that's just kind of very indulgent of the child. So I have that Eastern European <laughs> way of looking at it. And I, I do believe in discipline, but I maybe I'm not allowed to say because I don't have any kids, but I feel well, like no, I've raised no. my siblings. Yeah. At some younger. point, you know, should you choose to be a parent, you know, you'll be faced with this. But I think it's important that your kids have a healthy amount of fear. And that is fear of failure. Fear, I'm going to get a bad grade. Fear, like that's good. That's healthy. It teaches, it'll teach them, it'll be good lessons moving forward. They should have a slightly healthy fear of, I don't want to disappoint my parents. And I see so little of that these days. It's, it's, uh, it's mind boggling to me. So yeah, I, uh, I, I was, I was the dad. Uh, I was definitely the... Well, people uh, talk about the TikTok was uh, a thing today because there, there was the hearing about TikTok and whether that should be allowed. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, why do kids even have smartphones? And I got into a little bit of a, a debate earlier with my brother because we, we have a big age gap. So we kind of grew up kind of different lives, right? I mentioned mm -hmm. that I was an immigrant. My, my brother wasn't. So... Um, you know, we had sort of different l layers of, of life. So he, he got more, <laughs> let's say, privileges. I hate that word, but mm -hmm. uh, than I did. And, uh, you know, he had more sort of the, the experience of like, well, if I go to school and I don't have this thing, like everyone has a phone, right? Everyone has a smartphone or everyone has an iPad, whatever it is, right? Um, whereas I'm like, well, okay, so, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, look, I, I think that no one under the age of 18 should be on social media, period. That's it. It's the, the, the depression anxiety that's created by, in particular, young girls looking at Instagram. Thank God my kids kind of missed it. You know, Facebook was kind of coming into prominence when they were in high school and they just missed social media when they were at that age where it could have, you know, just affected them psychologically. So they missed it. But I don't think any child under the age of 18 should be looking at social media, period. That's it. And TikTok is incredibly corrosive 
Look at the rates of suicide. There's, I'll, I'll, you can look look up these statistics. Look up the rates of suicide and, and depression and how it tracks right around 2012, which was when smartphones became affordable, when parents could justify this purchase to a child. I would not, if I had a kid, they'd have a flip phone that I can track them and they can make calls and that's it. And that's and that's it. I, I, I don't I'm actually understand. pro flip phone for my for my kids. But actually, my yeah. my brother was all as as pro fully banning TikTok. Interestingly enough, that's a good idea. I think it's a good yeah. look at look at how horrible. I mean, it's just like I mean, look, I don't have TikTok, but I do see videos of TikTok on YouTube in sort of like look at this crazy thing on TikTok, and uh, I, I just think it's it's corrosive to society. Some of them are okay, but I think I think a lot of this stuff is how you. Use it, but I've unfortunately we've proven that as a society we seem to not know how to uh, use them in productive ways, and and I don't know what the solution to that is. I'm not a big fan of banning things, but right. I will say, um, look, um, I'm thinking about this too in terms of movies. Um, you know, when I was a when I was a kid, I will say my my parents did not monitor me very well when it comes to movies. Right. Um, or or anything uh, i did do stupid things on the internet i don't think they understood um and didn't have time because they were working hard <laughs> and and we were all quite naive about things and the dangers of the internet so i'm i'm fortunate that i didn't get into too much trouble uh but i i was i was up to no good a lot on the internet uh, but also um but also movies i watched I certainly watched movies I probably shouldn't have uh, as a, you know, when when you kind of think back, you're like, okay, I definitely watched some 18A kind of movies. Um, mm -hmm. What <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Because, um, I, I mean, I don't think it hard me, um, the movies or anything. But. It's a case-by-case -case basis. You know what your kids are ready for. My daughter, um, she's not particularly characteristic. She did not like Barbies or dolls, did not like that being forced in her. She liked... Godzilla and monster movies. So she was into horror. Her brother was not into that. So um, I think she saw the movie Alien when she was 14 and loved the film, became an H.R. Giger fan. She's a writer. She loves that stuff. World of fantasy. She was ready for it. I really do think it's case by case basis with kids, but it really comes down to, you know, your kid. I'm not going to allow a teacher or society to, to, to determine what is correct for my child. It's very, very different in terms of what they're exposed to. You know when they've seen something because a kid can see something incredibly innocuous when they're yeah. young that can scare them. You know, look, Snow White is a scary movie. <laughs> to, a, to, a, to a child of a certain age, Snow White can be very scary. You kind of gauge and you just know. You know your kid. You'll, you'll know kind of what they're ready for. But the point of waiting to until a certain age is so that they've got the moral fiber, the backbone, the sense of character to when they're exposed to, to something that they may disagree with, that they're not ready for, that they don't react in a, they don't, it doesn't affect them. It's a shield. Like back when I was in college, the term woke didn't exist, but sort of wokeness was prevalent at the school I went to in Detroit, Wayne State University, but we called it become aware, which is if you're aware that there are a lot of things in the world that are, say, sexist, racist, whatever, it doesn't have to affect you if you're exposed to it. It, it, it yeah. doesn't need to affect you. You know, like, look, I personally, I don't love country music, but I'm not going to shut down 
a, a country music concert that's in my neighborhood because I don't like country music. And, and those are the people that, that um, I think need to be um, it's kind of like a playground bully. I'm not, I don't advocate for violence ever, no. but the way to, you know, stop a, a playground bully is usually you punch them in the nose and they bleed, you know, which is effectively in the real world, just push back. But yeah, that is the thing that is new to me. I mean, look, I did a panel at WonderCon. It was in 2015. It was called Fanfic Theater. I'm only saying this because WonderCon is this weekend and I'm I'm attending. And uh, it, it was a fun panel. You know, you write, uh, we presented fanfic that was read by comedians and actors and we would invite people from the audience. They would read fan fiction to the crowd. Uh, there were about a hundred people on Twitter that wanted to shut shut it down because this was an offense to people who were fan fiction writers. The 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 outcry on social media was so you know loud that it made a story in the Hollywood Reporter. They ended up canceling the panel. We rebranded it as something else. We changed the name of it. But the person who sought out to cancel the panel showed up to the panel and was live tweeting what we were talking about. So I've been exposed. Look, there's a reason that the documentary about film threat, which I created, is called Film Threat Sucks. I have dealt, I have dealt with humorless people my whole life. I have been a sarcastic asshole since the beginning. So when people are surprised, they see I say something on social media that sounds like something that would come from a sarcastic asshole. I've been the same since I was uh uh you know, since I was 19 for sure. Um, I had a tweet that blew up viral. I just ignored it because I think that there are people on social media that are addicted to rage. They're addicted to feeling angry. So they want to feel the feelings of feeling angry. They want to, you know, get someone on social media, whatever that means. And all I said in a tweet, it popped into my head. I thought, well, this is funny. Make Marvel male again. That's all I said. Four words. Four words, make Marvel mail again. Well, it exploded. And I had people, you know, unfollowing me. I actually gained, ended up, it ended up that was a net plus. But um, people were fighting in the comments. I stayed out of it. I sort of snarky, had a couple snarky remarks. And then I thought, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I have I have work to do. I'm trying to finish a movie. I'm right. So, so, and in a couple of days, it went away. Well, it blew up so big. There's now a T-shirt that is one of the big, it says make Marvel mail again with like the Marvel logo. And I, and the money goes to testicular cancer charity. I'd make, nice. I made $0 from it, but um, it, the, it was just surprising to me that like people I've known for two decades saying, I can't believe you said this, Chris. How are you able, to, how are you able to sort of, um, because obviously, as we've discussed, a lot of people are just scared to say what they think. How you don't seem to have that issue. And I know that part of it is that, yeah, you're you're a cancel proof. But I think for a lot of people, even if they are, because we, we know people who are, you know, quite powerful, have a lot of financial means. Um, what is it that makes it kind of like you're able to do that? Is it just your personality? Like, what is it? Uh, I I I feel that just I don't know. Maybe it's because I I was raised by women, and by that I mean it sounds like I said I just I just said I was raised by wolves. But you yeah, know, <laughs> single mom I had a sister. I also had two aunts, very close. 
So I was just around a lot of women when I was a kid, and I feel I've always been empathetic. So I'll be able to look at an issue from all sides. So when I see this, the issues of like what's happening in entertain entertainment with a lot of ideas and people that aren't like ready to be in, I, I see like, I don't blame them. It's the people above them that are enabling it. Right. So, so, and also I guess I've been around a long time and, you know, because I'm just very open and honest about something, like if someone came to me and said, you really went too far with that. It's like, I would probably think like, well, did I go too far? No, I, I'm actually good with it. I disagree. Like, I just don't, um, like a friend of mine said once a vile thing. He said, um, the who gives a shit attitude is like a cologne that attracts vagina. Um, and um, there's, I've always sort of felt that, like, I just don't care. It'll go away. And I don't, I, no one's forcing me to look at the comments. I just sort of ran down some of the comments like, wow, this person I know, like, really, you've, I've known you for like 15 years. I was on your podcast and you're, you, I say, make Marvel mail again. You're canceling me because of this by canceling. They're just unfollowing me or whatever. Like it doesn't have real world, world, real world consequences to me. Whereas there's a generation growing up now that their life is a digital life. Their life is fully digital, whether it's they're in need of, um, you know, validation from likes online. And because I didn't grow up, like I was able to build my moral character before I was exposed to this black mirror thing. Um, it, it doesn't bother me as much. And the problem is now we're, we're kids are being raised and this is part of their daily lives. Their digital lives are just as real as their real lives. And it sucks. Um, a friend of mine named Paul Chato has a YouTube channel. He did a video essay called the, the death of shared experiences. We're now living through a time where, look, I, as soon as movie theaters were open, and I never stopped going to the movies mm -hmm. because drive-in movie theaters were open during this the pandemic, and uh, I went to the movie. I went to the drive-in every week. I go to the movie theater at least a minimum of once a week. That shared experience of being in a darkened theater—it's almost like, I mean, uh, movie theaters are my church. You know, and that shared shared experience is important, but they're now people being raised and growing up, they don't have the benefit of those shared experiences. You know, when something resonates with a bunch of people and strangers in a room, they all laugh at the same joke. It it, it connects us. They don't have real connection, right? Uh, and they don't, they hardly, especially because, you know, I used to hire a lot of young people, interns. I can't hire an intern now. They're worthless. I will spend more time it, they will waste more of my time just learning to be a person than, than uh, being able to be useful for me. So I don't have interns anymore. I've come up with a set of processes that work for me. I can be very efficient. And um, I'm, I'm all into wonky, efficiency, nerdy books. Um, I recommend mm -hmm. uh, The 4-Hour Workweek is a great book and The No Asshole Rule, another great book. Um, and I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts like The Masters of Scale, if you care about uh, like how to build a business and whatnot. Like if it's, you know, look, if you yeah. can make, if you can make a hundred dollars, you can make $10,000. How do you scale the hundred to 10,000? And, you know, what I've been able to do with film threat, because film threat has not always been, it's only been the last, like maybe six, seven years that film threat has enjoyed some kind of success. We had sort of success and then we failed and success. And then we failed. And then the print magazine, that was a whole thing in the late nineties. 
um, there was a paper crisis that raised the price of paper, which put all alternative press magazines out of business. Magazines like Spy Magazine, The Nose from San Francisco, uh, a lot of print magazines, Film Thread among them, in the late 90s went under. I believe that they're not that I, uh, I believe that there might've been something behind that. We're going to raise the price of paper. So alternative press is going to be. And people can't read books either. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then the rise of the internet in 96, we launched the website, but I I've seen sort of the world from like fanzine to a print magazine, to a national magazine, to no magazine, to a website, to a YouTube channel and a website and a, all the, all the, all the stuff that comes with it seems like a lot of stuff is is about having that resilience, right? Um, which seems like it's hard, to, like a lot of people don't have, even with, um, you know, for example, you mentioned earlier with, uh, you know, I don't know, for me, you know, if somebody says something anti-Semitic, for example, when I'm in, in my more healthy state of mind, I kind of, I, I brush it off because they go, well, that's just a reflection of that person and their limited worldview. And that's it. And I move on. I don't take it personally. And instead, people just, we have this kind of grievance culture because it creates sort of, you know, either a state of victimhood that gives somebody power or, or some special status, or because somebody is genuinely hurt, but they're hurt because they don't have that resilience. And so, you know, so we have this kind of culture. Mm -hmm. But also, like we we have created we have a culture that is so sensitive. And as a result, you know, we we have limited ourselves in in our capacity to tell stories. And and we have people who are so sensitive, so we can't tell the truth to each other. And so our relationships are sort of well, are inauthentic. And uh, and therefore, and, and like you said, also this sense of community doesn't exist or these shared experiences. So again, we we have less again less authentic relationships. How do you see that uh, changing? You know, do you think that's going to change in the near future, or is there is there a cure? Are we kind of stuck here for a while? Well, from my experience, I can't have like a, a just a superficial relationship. I don't like with friends. I can't, I, I don't know how to do that. Maybe it's because my upbringing, my family, we were close, but if anyone was ever acting like an asshole or was out of line, the way of dealing with that was humor. I think humor is, is a great uh, weapon, especially when something's actually funny. So, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's getting off of this, these black mirrors, just get off these devices. And I don't know how to do that. I think it's also like for parents bringing back the, um, you have dinner with your kids. Like none of this, like, I'm going to take my food in my room. I'm going to heat up my hot pocket. You're sitting down and having dinner. And that's what we're doing. And we're going to talk about our day and those typical things. And what is the best thing that happened to you today? What is the worst thing that happened to you today? And I've always just, I've, had, I've always had like a weird eclectic group of friends, mainly just because I always was, I mean, I, I was not physically large. It wasn't until like late in high school that I developed and bloomed, you know? And so I always had, my friend group was always very nerdy, comic books or whatever. And, and it was just a group of misfits, you know, whether it was my Jewish friend who was in a wheelchair, whether it was my friend, John Wu, not the director, uh, who was Chinese and we were just sort of like, we were, we were connected because we like, we'd sit here and talk about like, you know, rolled doll books. The great glass elevator is a weird 
that's a weird book to read when you're like in fourth grade. Um, I love Roald Dahl. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't I don't know how to do that. Um, I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, Jonathan, is it Jonathan Haidt? Jonathan Haidt, I don't pronounce, pronounce the last name. H-A-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-A-I-T-H-
again, it's that shared thing. Um, and so I think a lot of people miss that. And I think that changes our culture and makes us much more separate. So if you're just living in your little silo of just, you know, I don't know, TikTok references, which I might, I might now miss because I'm, I'm now missing some of the more youthful uh, references, which is maybe not so great. But, but I, you know, we do have a wider uh, reference point uh, otherwise, I think. Well, I mean, look, I, I that opinion about the dead white male authors is stupid. I think it's important that the classics are read with the idea that that it was written at a certain time when people thought a certain way. You know, you could also read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein if you don't like the men. But I've never believed in this canceling. But I certainly think that more chairs at the table is a good thing. Different sure. authors that are the best uh, voices. But the the idea that we're becoming more and more divided because we don't have those points of connection. You know, it used to be that uh, 20, years, 20 years ago, you could say, you could reference a Beatles song and everyone knew. I, I love, everyone loved the Beatles, right? That's not exactly the case these days. So when it comes to music, when it comes to so many things, the pie is being divided into so many slivers of reference. There are hardly, where are the references that resonate with everyone? And to me, the person who can tap into that, tap into the current zeitgeist, which I, I believe now the current zeitgeist is not, no one has tapped into it. No one has tapped into it in, in a way. I mean, when you look at like the two big box office movies of last year, Avatar 2 and Top Gun Maverick, both sequels, both sort of harken back to a different, I mean, look, there was nothing revelatory about those movies. They're very common, right? It's like, they're just, you know, they're like comfort food blockbuster movies. We've seen them. It's, but those movies both made north of a billion dollars at the box office and everything else struggled. Why are people going back to that? Because it's safe. And yeah. not that everything has to be safe, but even the things that are taking a risk um, aren't getting near the um, near the attention that it should get. And I feel that there are things in the zeitgeist now that the creative people who can tap into it, it will be huge because something is happening in this country that I think is very dangerous and people are not calling it out. And it's it's I, I think it's to our detriment. It's... Um, it's just horrible to see in real time the opinions of people that I thought I knew just sort of lean into the divisiveness or lean into what I find these very common stupid opinions that are now being popularized. And uh, yeah, I don't really agree with that. So uh, I can only do what I do. Like, look, I'm a guy that like I cover movies and I make little little independent films. Uh, am I comfortable? Uh, yeah, I love it. You know, I'm able to make a living doing what I love. So, uh, but it's, um, I think more and more, the thing that you can't put a price on is authenticity. And that's what Hollywood, you can spend a lot of money. You can hire the best actors, but authenticity is something that is, um, it, 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 to me, it has value. This is why we've seen the crumbling state of the major news networks. Does anyone take CNN or MSNBC or Fox seriously anymore? When you see like, you know, here's, here's quote the message, right? Here's the message that they have to put out there. Um, it, it, but you see it right now. They're not even good at it. They used to be good at it. You know, back like in the, in the nineties, they were kind of good at like, here's why we're doing this thing. It's uh, to save these people. It's we're doing a good thing as a country because, uh, 
freedom. Uh, yeah. Keywords. Uh, yeah. We have to do all, you know what I mean? They were no, good but, at yeah, but yeah. I think the key, I think you're correct. I think two things is authenticity and, and how do you make it so that the culture really reflects people in a way that brings us together instead of turning us against each other and, and apart and brings us apart, which is really what's happening. And that's where I think, you know, the focus needs to be. But right now, unfortunately, you know, that's not what, that is not what is happening. And I, I do think, unfortunately, it's going to take quite a while until that changes. But there are some people who are, making some headway, but I think it's going to be a very slow progress. And I think it's going to be the center that actually makes it happen. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. But I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me. And um, we've covered a lot of random ground and a lot of, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of specific ground as well. But I, I really enjoyed the, having an opportunity to speak with you. Great. Yeah, let's uh, let's do it again. This was fun. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chris.